0: What is something about you that others must understand if they are to know you? If they miss this thing, they would completely get you wrong, and kind of everything else would crumble. Does something come immediately to mind? Well, maybe if something doesn't come to mind for you, you can think of someone else who is close to you. And so maybe the first thing that you think of that you must understand in order to get you is a hobby or an interest. If I think of the people close to me, I think of people who are really into Disney or Steely Dan and the Doobie Brothers or coloring books or data and analytics or the Chicago Bears something that you have to get in order to know someone. But perhaps there's something even more essential than just a hobby. Maybe you have to know something you've been through, an experience. In order to get you, you must know that I had a difficult childhood, that I went through certain schooling, that I've been certain places, that I've went through these trials that I've had these different successes. Maybe that's the thing you need to know in order to know a person. Could there be something more essential than interests or experiences? Well, maybe, yeah, we could keep going. Maybe it's personality traits or character traits. What you need to know about a person is that she is an extrovert or an introvert. That she's kind, or kind of mean. (laughs) That he is hot-tempered or really mellow and calm. When deciding what's the most essential thing to know about a person, that if you didn't know that thing, everything else would crumble. There are a lot of choices, aren't there? A lot of choices. In this sense, then, people are like cars. Not in that we're machines, no, but in that there are a lot of vital parts, and if you miss one of those parts, kind of everything goes kaput. So in a car, if you don't have a radiator or an axle rod, if you don't have tires, if you don't have a transmission, if you don't have doors, if you don't have one of those things, you lose the car, kind of everything else goes kaput. But we ask, just like cars, and for us, too. There may be a lot of vital parts, but what is it that makes it run? What's at the very core? What's the engine? For us, what is it that gives us dignity, that gives us worth and value and identity? Here, in the book of Galatians, the last words Paul reminds us again that what should be at the very core, the very core of our identity, our dignity, our value, is the cross of Jesus Christ. If we forget the cross of Jesus Christ, everything else goes kaput. So I invite you to turn to the book of Galatians, chapter 6. This is the last sermon in the uh, book of Galatians. It's been a good journey. If you're looking at the pew bible uh, you'll find this on page 975 galatians chapter 6 as you're turning there i want you to keep in mind the main point of this passage in the sermon that admits all the that would vie for our allegiance we must remember that the cross changes everything it gives us new confidence before god It transforms us from the inside out. It releases us from the world and brings us into the people of God. So let's read God's word from Galatians chapter 6, beginning at verse 11. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for those who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Is this how you would say goodbye in a letter? Is this how you would say goodbye in a real life? I think of my interactions with my family, especially my extended family. When my extended family is all together, you need to plan about 20 or 30 minutes in advance to say goodbye. Because you've got to say bye to each individual person, small conversation, have the hug, and then you're finally out the door. This is Paul's Goodbye. And to us, it may seem a little bit unique. And even for Paul's letters, it's unique. In other of Paul's letters, there's more niceties and formalities. But here, Paul's tone reminds us of the situation to which he's writing in Galatia. His tone is one of urgency. This situation matters. This is an urgent matter. So one last time he exhorts the Galatians. One last time, he summarizes the issue. So breaking down his goodbye, we can structure it something like this. At the front end and the back end are more formal remarks. And the bulk of it is one last presentation of the issue at hand for them. That in all the chaos that they are experiencing, how they are tempted to stray from relying on Christ alone as their Savior, In all that chaos, Paul calls them to reset and reconsider all the ways that these agitators who have come into their community are faulty and misguided. To reset and reconsider the centrality of Christ, the full significance of what he has done. That's the structure of Paul's last goodbye. And as we're reading this, it's similar to our experience reading other scripture. Because something obvious is in front of us. We aren't the Galatians. We aren't in the first century. We've never met the Apostle Paul. We don't know these agitators. There are probably... No teachers uh, around us who attempt us to return to following the prescriptions of the Old Testament law. So knowing all that, knowing that there seems to be this chasm between us and the original audience of the Bible, we ask, well, why is this then still relevant? Well, friends, we may be in a different time, in a different place. We may be facing different sets of circumstances, But friends, we still face the same danger that the Galatians faced. Losing the centrality of the cross of Christ. We face that danger. So because of that, we confess that the same spirit who inspired the Apostle Paul to write this letter to the Galatians is the spirit who uses this word in our hearts today. So that this word is the sword of the Spirit and living and active and absolutely still relevant. So knowing that, we dive in. Dive into verse 11 and we see here that Paul attaches his name to a letter. The common practice of the day in writing something was that you would have a secretary write for you. So here Paul takes the pen in his own hand and authenticates this letter for the Galatians, and indicates these things are very important. And he begins what we could see as a closing statement of a trial: Paul being the prosecuting attorney, and these agitators being the defendants. and the Galatians, the jury. And Paul, the prosecutor, begins his closing statement by putting the defendants on the hot seat and telling the Galatians, the jury, here is all that these agitators would tell you matters. Here is what they think is actually important. We read verses 11 to 13, and we see that Paul makes at least three observations, three things that the agitators would say are important. The first relates to the action that the agitators want for the Galatians, and the second two relate to their motives. So Paul, the prosecutor, begins by saying, these agitators, they would tell you that what matters is outward performance. That what matters is outward performance. And where do we see this? Well, friends, look at the verse 12. What are these agitators trying to get the Galatians to do? By now, it's clear. They are trying to get them to be circumcised. And more generally, they want the Galatians to submit to the Old Testament law. Now, Paul doesn't present the fullness of their case. He doesn't present the agitator's argument of why they should do this. But we could summarize their argument with a parallel passage. Acts chapter 15, verse 1. Their argument would go something like this verse. It says, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's what their argument boiled down to. And so you may ask, well, how does this concern show that they are only worried and concerned about outward performance? Does trying to get them to be circumcised really show that? Is that a fair assessment of that? Well, why else would they constantly emphasize this? Why would they have such a constant emphasis on this circumcision and this outward performance if Christ is who he says he is? if Christ has done what he has actually done. So this constant emphasis must reveal that they haven't really grasped the fullness of the significance of Christ's work. That he has fulfilled the demands of the law in our place. And that he has taken the curse of the law that we deserve on himself. Their constant emphasis on outward performance must show that they don't really get what Jesus has done. But this constant emphasis on outward performance and on the law, it shows, too, that they really even haven't grasped obedience either. They have all this talk about things that we do on the outside, but that's only half the picture. Well, friends, it's not that obedience doesn't matter. It's not that our outward obedience is meaningless but it is meaningless unless it comes from a changed heart and really as we read the bible that's a constant theme and emphasis that outward performance doesn't automatically mean that you have a heart that is right with the lord We saw this earlier in the book of Isaiah, chapter 1. The people there could follow all all the motions of what they were supposed to do. And God can still call them to repent in their hearts. We can see this in other places in Scripture. God's command to his people who would be circumcised. He tells them, circumcise your hearts. There's something deeper at stake here. We can keep on going, trace this theme through the Bible and the New Testament. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus' words. He, he points to those who talk a big game about how much they serve him. But they don't really know him as a Lord in their hearts. It says, in that day, he will tell them, Depart from me, for I never knew you. Even in Paul's other writings, 1 Corinthians 13. He can say, we have all the right spiritual gifts. We can be abounding in those things. But if we do not have love, a heart of love behind those gifts, the outward stuff doesn't matter. So here, we can have all the right outward behavior and performance and still have A heart that's bitter and against the lord and a heart that has us as our lord instead of christ i think we all still struggle with this friends from my own experience i went through a season in particular that i that the lord woke me up to this it was right when i first went to college right when i believed the lord called me to ministry That I was convinced in my mind that if I just did the things that Christians are supposed to do and didn't do the things that Christians aren't supposed to do, then I'm good. That everything else is fine. So if I did things like praying, albeit occasionally, reading the Bible, albeit sparingly, coming to church, and if I didn't do the things like going too far with girls, like drinking, smoking. If I just did the things Christians are supposed to do, not do the things Christians are supposed to do, then everything else take care of itself. Everything is fine. What the Lord showed me, even in his grace, through those outward things, he showed me that I can do all those things and fail to consider what I love the most and what I desire the most. That I can do all those things and remain unchanged in my heart. So friends, this is because I think we have, we have a desire that the outward would be the only thing that matters. Just give us the steps. Just tell me what to do and I'll do it. Let me just go through the motions. Give me these seven sacraments. I know they'll just work. I'll just do it. Give me the five pillars. I'll go through the motions. We'll do it. I'll be good. Give me this eightfold path. I'll do it. We want to plug in a formula so that we can remain unbothered in our hearts, so that we can remain our Lord. John Stott writes this, it is natural to fallen man, to decline from the real, the inward, and the spiritual, and to fabricate a substitute religion which is easy and comfortable because its demands are external and ceremonial only it's just the outward, that's easy. Anybody can do that. They think what matters is outward performance. Paul shows that this is a misplaced emphasis. And it'd be one thing if this misplaced emphasis came from good motives, if it came from genuine motives. You know, if they were saying, oh, you know, the loss has been here for so long and it's been so central to our identity. I Really, how is this supposed to mesh with Jesus and the new people of God and, and Gentiles coming into the people of God? How is this supposed to work? Surely we still have to keep doing this. No, no, no. It, it wasn't this innocent, well-intended motives. That'd be one thing. But they had this misplaced emphasis, not from genuine motives, but from selfish ones. And here we see in verse 12... Their motive of this misplaced emphasis was to avoid persecution, to protect themselves. So here Paul is telling the Galatians, these agitators would tell you that what matters is a comfortable life. That's what matters most. These agitators would feel the same pressure that Peter felt in Galatians chapter 2 when he removed himself from uh, eating with the Gentile Christians, when he saw those from the circumcision party. Because he would be threatened to be ostracized from the community if he did not insist on new Christians to obey the law. And not just threatened to be dispelled from the community. You would risk violence. So that, the question becomes for us, is our safety and comfort the things that matter the most. Is that what matters the most? It cannot be. Those things cannot be what matters the most. Because if they are, then when following Jesus threatens our safety and comfort, we will deny Jesus and pick our safety and comfort. Peter knew this. Peter knew this when Jesus was on trial and a little girl came up to him when he was warming himself by the fire. It just took that much for Peter to say, All right, I'm going to keep my safety and comfort before following the Lord. He did the same thing in Antioch with the Gentile Christians. Our safety and comfort can't be what matters most. What matters most must be following the Lord Jesus Christ. But Steve, you'll say, like, isn't, isn't it just human? Isn't it natural to be concerned with our safety and comfort? I mean, think about the people I love. Think about my family. Isn't it natural for, for me to want them to be safe and even comfortable? Absolutely it's natural. So what, notice what this isn't saying. This isn't saying that we are reckless. This isn't saying that we are careless, that we go out and try to pick fights. No way, this isn't saying that we aren't peaceful, that we aren't dignified, that we aren't godly. The Bible holds up all of those things. This is saying that if we seek our safety and comfort above all else, then somewhere down the line, we're going to have to deny Christ in some way to hold on to our safety and comfort. Somewhere down the line, those desires will butt heads. And we'll have to pick one. So it may be if you prioritize your safety and comfort above everything else, it may be that you gain the whole world doing that. But somewhere down the line, you will have to deny Christ in some way. And what profit profit will it be for you, friend, if you gain the whole world, deny Christ, and lose your own soul? That's what Jesus says in response to this. He says, Whoever would save his life would lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So, what would create this shift in us? What would make us change to no longer want our safety and comfort above everything else? The change comes when we find something even better than our own safety and comfort. That's the failure of these agitators. They didn't see the cross as better than their own safety and comfort. And that's the question for ourselves. Is is our protecting our safety and comfort going to shape how we view the cross? That'll just be a thing that we pull out when it's convenient for us. Or will the cross shape how we view our safety and comfort? What's going to come first? And if you think about it, doesn't the cross, doesn't the cross of Jesus Christ give us safety and comfort that we can never give ourselves? Doesn't it? What else would give us confidence in the face of death? What else would give sinful people confidence in the face of a holy God besides the Son of God slain for us. What else? So that's the ironic thing. You, you protect your safety and comfort with everything you have, you'll lose it, just like Jesus says. But the best way to do it is to hide yourself in Him and seek the cross above all else. When the cross shapes our view of our own safety and comfort, we can join Martin Luther in his great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, and say, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. Paul's closing statement, he finds that the agitators have this misplaced emphasis on outward performance, and it's born not out of genuine uh, motives. It's born out of selfish motives. Motivated by protecting themselves. And not just that. They're motivated by making a name for themselves. He tells the Galatians, These agitators would tell you what matters most are our accomplishments. You see that the word boast in In verses 12 and 13, those phrases connected with that, boasting in the flesh. Here, there's meant to be some sarcasm. Their their emphasis on removing a part of the flesh shows that they are enslaved to their spiritual flesh. And there's no way that this emphasis wasn't out of self-interest. There's no way that this was genuine. There's no way that they actually cared about the law. Do you know why? Because if you are honest, and after reading the law for maybe one minute, you will say that there is no way we can use it to establish our worth before God. No way. We would quickly see that we cannot earn God's favor by following the law. So actually, they have too low of a view of it. The standard's perfection. The standard is God's glory and holiness. So it makes their emphasis all the more sadly ironic. Because for all their emphasis on external behavior, external behavior can't save us. It can't. So it's obvious they didn't take the law seriously. So, they must want something else, Paul is telling the Galatians. Paul tells the Galatians what the agitators want, what they really, really want. They really want accolades, they want accomplishments. They want to treat the Galatians like trophies in their display case. And the more trophies they think that they get, The more God will love them, the more they will be worthy in God's sight. The more accomplishments they get, the more righteous they become. They think that accomplishments are what matters. Are we any different? Are we any different? think on a personal level, why do we value intelligence? influence, and success so much? Why do we value those things so much? Why do we value those things for our kids so much? Do we think that by getting those things that God will love us more? Do we think that the God of the universe, the God of all glory, will be impressed by our intelligence, our influence, or our success? that question alone should clue us in to realize that our accomplishments are a bad thing to establish our worth before the Lord. So are we any different? Friends, think on a ministry level. Don't we use accomplishments to establish the worth of a ministry? Isn't that the case? When the agitator's mind the more circumcisions they get, the more God must love them. Has that changed today? Now the language. The more baptisms we get, the more cheeks in the seats we get, the more God must love us. Is this our confidence before God? Is that it? Really, will will a few hundred people gathered together impress the God who made everything the God who rules all things. Is that what it takes to impress him? No, it's it's an underestimation of that. Well, You you may say, don't we want more people to hear? Absolutely. Yes, we want more to hear, more to come to Christ. But the number won't make the message any more or less true. Think about Noah in the flood. Was the flood any more or less true because only Noah's family went on it? No. So friends, numbers may go up and down. The gospel never changes. So we give ourselves to the gospel first and let the Lord of the harvest take care of the results. He knows what he's doing. We do well to build discernment in this area. Especially when we are tempted to compare ourselves to others and compare ourselves to other churches. Comparison is a a really risky business. Comparison is the business of thinking that our accomplishments are what matters before the Lord. That's not the case. What matters before the Lord is not our accomplishments, but Christ's accomplishment in our place. And that's really the heart of the matter, isn't it? What is our boast? What is our confidence? What is the reason that we think God considers us worthy? For the agitators, the cross was not their boast. The cross was more of a boost. Sure, it it helped some. But we're the ones who really have to seal the deal. So for them, what matters most is not what Christ has done. The, The thing that ultimately hinges on whether or not they are worthy before God is what they do. And Paul here says emphatically, that is not the case. So what does, really, what does it really matter? What really matters if all these things don't? Well, verse 14 begins a new stage of Paul's closing statement. He's finished grilling his opponents, shown their misguided emphasis, and shown that that emphasis was born out of selfish motives, to protect themselves, to make a name for themselves. Here is all that they would tell you what matters, Paul tells the Galatians. They would tell you that outward performance matters more than an inward heart. They would tell you that personal safety and comfort matter more than faithfulness in following the Lord. They would tell you that our accomplishments matter more than Christ's accomplishments of his substitutionary work. So what really matters? Paul says, here, listen, what really matters is the cross. He says his boast is in the cross. And to the readers in the first century, at best, that would be a strange statement. And at worst, it would be an inappropriate statement. Because in the first century, no one wore cross necklaces, believe it or not. The cross was the most gruesome and shameful instrument of torture and death. You didn't talk about it. This would be like saying, my boast is in the gas chamber. My boast is in the guillotine. My boast is in the electric chair. So what would lead Paul to say something so strange and and so inappropriate? Well, notice his boast is not in the cross generally. Generally. His boast is in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what does it mean to boast in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ? It means that this is the basis of our confidence that we are forgiven and accepted by God the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I love this. You see that word accept? It says, I won't boast. Except There's one thing that's going to make me boast. One. One area of confidence. The only basis of confidence that we are forgiven, have good status, are worthy in God's sight. The only basis is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. The basis is nothing that we've done. It is only in what Christ has done for us. Praise the Lord. What Christ has done for us, the only basis of confidence, pinned our sin to the cross, given uh, his righteousness to us. Friend, there is no other ground. All other ground is sinking sand, like the hymn says. No other ground for forgiveness, status, identity, There's no other ground for this, for sinners against the holy God. But there is this ground. There is Jesus who died in your place and rose again for your sake. And Jesus says now to turn from your sin, to trust in him alone. So today, today, if he is not your confidence, if he is not your boast, make him your boast today. Make his perfect life. And the payment for your sin on the cross, your only confidence before God. And friend, your life will change. If you want to know more about what this means? We would be happy to talk to you about this after service. And what happens when the cross of Christ becomes our boast? I keep reading. Verse 14. When the cross of Christ becomes our boast, we have a new relationship to the world united to Jesus, not only through him is sin dead to us, but also the world is dead to us. Because of Christ's work, nothing in the world has a hold on us anymore. Like Colossians 1 says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So practically, boots on the ground. The cross, being our only boast, our ultimate basis of confidence before the Lord that he accepts us and he has forgiven us. The cross being our boast removes the power of the world because now there is nothing in the world that we must have in order to establish our worth and our righteousness and our identity. Nothing in the world that we must have. Because in Jesus, he has given us all that we need for our worth, our forgiveness, our righteousness, our identity. So, Christian, do you treat the world like this? Do you treat the world as if you don't need anything from it? Or do you act like you must have things from the world? Are your desires becoming demands? Do you feel powerless to get what you want? Friends, come back to Christ and see that he has given us everything we will ever need for our worth, our value, our forgiveness, our righteousness. He's done it. We don't need anything from the world for that. That is is freeing. What matters is the cross. There's a similar truth in verse 15. Verse 14, Paul says, What matters is not our accomplishments, but Christ's accomplishments on the cross. In verse 15, he says, What matters is not our outward performance, but a new creation. And what is Paul getting at with that phrase, new creation? Sometimes it helps to define something by seeing what it stands in contrast to. So new creation stands in contrast to outward performance and behavior. You see that circumcision and uncircumcision. Paul's saying that those things ultimately don't matter to give us a good standing before God. What matters is having Jesus stand in your place. So are we saying then that God doesn't care about how we live? Just have Jesus as your Savior, do what you want. You're good. No, 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 that's not the case. God is concerned that we live holy. But the new life of holiness we live only comes from a heart that is made new by God's Spirit. That's what we've seen in chapter 5. Think about it, friends. There's no fruit without roots. Believe it or not, the the natural state of fruit is not in a mesh bag at Aldi. (laughs) You can't have that if if there are no roots, if it's not connected to life. The only way we get outward performance that pleases the Lord is if we are connected to him. That begins when we take hold of Christ by faith. And we've already seen that when we do that, it has immediate effects on our life. That immediately we see sin in a different light. Because we see sin as an awful thing that he died for. That immediately we see the world in a different way. That we don't need anything from the world. That Christ has given us what we need. Immediately we even see God in a different way that we don't obey him to get stuff from him we obey him because of what he's already done for us because we're grateful and we love him this is the new creation life and it's empowered by God's spirit so what matters more the new behavior is a new heart so on another level though new creation stands in contrast to the world Of verse 14. And it stands in contrast even to the present evil age of Galatians 1 verse 4. This means that God giving us new hearts is a part of his bigger work through his son in making all things new. It means that Christians are a part of something far bigger than just themselves. Far bigger. Christians are a part of God's major restoration project, restoring the peace that was lost at Eden. And the final phase of that project has already begun with the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And one day he will return and complete that project. So, what next? What matters is the cross. What matters is new creation. What do we do next? Well, those who know these things, who really know them, are going to walk in these things. You see in verse 16, they're going to live like it. Those who live like it are those who have peace and mercy. Those who walk by the rule of Christ crucified as their only boast. Those who are set free from the world those who are made new by the Spirit, those who are shown to be a part of God's major restoration project. These are God's people. We see here the phrase, Israel of God. Can trip people up. but Remember that Paul he mentions this only in passing. He's not, not going into a full-length discussion on it. But here, just for now, notice what's distinct about this Israel. What sets apart this Israel here? It's the Israel of God. That's what makes it distinct, of God. And remember the argument of the entire letter. The argument of the letter is that physical connection to Abraham is not what ultimately matters. What matters is being connected to Abraham through Jesus Christ, the true son of Abraham who brings blessing to all the nations, the fulfillment of Genesis 12. So Paul is not denying that ethnic Israel exists. He's Jewish himself. He's saying that no matter what physical descent you have, those who are of God are those who walk by this rule. Those who rest only on the finished work of Christ and are empowered by his spirit. All right, it's for real this time. We gotta say goodbye. Goodbye. The last goodbye comes in verses 17 and 18. Paul says, The new is here. The new creation is here. Christ has ushered it in with his cross. And even Paul gives evidence of it in himself, not with the marks of circumcision, but with the marks of being beaten for Christ. If the new is here, no more turning back to the old. Paul has suffered much for the gospel. Now he's telling the Galatians, it's time for them to stand firm as well. And notice the assurance he gives them in his final words in verse 18. See those words, our and brothers? Assuring them they are a part of the same family because they have the same Lord. They've been shown the same grace and he wants even more grace for them. The grace of our Lord be with your spirit. And really, we've seen God's grace through the Lord Jesus Christ throughout the book of Galatians. We've seen grace from God that he has made this gospel known to us through the witness of his apostles in the first one and a half chapters. We've seen in the middle portion of the book of Galatians the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in being that he alone saves us through his work and not our work. We've seen the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in the final two chapters of Galatians that in those he saves by his grace, he makes new by his grace through his spirit. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, where would we be without it? So, friends, out of all that would vie for our allegiance, we remember what God has done for us through his Son, out of his grace. Let's pray. All glory be to Christ, our King. All of it. God, fix our values. Show us what we think matters, and then show us the truth. Cause us to examine ourselves, to see that what matters most, what our only boast, our only basis of confidence in you is not our outward performance, is not our accomplishments, it's not our safety and protection. The only basis of confidence before a holy God and confidence in the face of death is Christ crucified, and raised in our place. His righteousness, not ours. His performance, His accomplishment, not our own. Would we renew ourselves in this, Lord? Help us. In Jesus' name, amen.